0: There's never been one America. There were several Americas.
1: Hi everybody, my name is Doug Barr and it's a pleasure to welcome you to the St. Helena Forum for Innovation and Creativity. The forum is an educational nonprofit with a mission to inform, entertain, and we hope inspire by presenting artistic performances and exchanges of creative and innovative thinking on a wide variety of humanities-based subjects. America, unlike any other country on Earth, is awash in guns. As of last March, there are roughly 400 million privately owned firearms in the United States, more guns than people. We're already on track to make this year the deadliest ever, with more than 300 mass shootings so far. Since Columbine in 1999, we've endured 386 deadly school shootings, and yet our country remains stubbornly divided on what to do about it. To better understand why that is, we need to look back more than 100 years before the Founding Fathers who wrote the Second Amendment to the Constitution were even born. We need to consider events that predate not only political parties but the Republic itself. To help us do that, we've invited author, journalist, and historian Colin Woodard to join us at today's forum. Woodard graduated with a BA from Tufts University and completed his Master's in International Relations at the University of Chicago. He was a Pew Fellow in International Journalism at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. As state and national affairs writer at the Portland Press Herald and Maine Sunday Telegram, he received a 2012 Polk Award and was named Maine Journalist of the Year in 2014 and was a finalist for the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for Explanatory Reporting. A longtime foreign correspondent of the Christian Science Monitor, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the Chronicle of Higher Education, he's reported from more than 54 countries and seven continents. In 2021, Colin was named a visiting senior fellow at the Pell Center for International Relations and Public Policy. He's the founder and current director of the Pell Center's Nationhood Lab. Woodard's work has appeared in dozens of publications, including The Economist, The New York Times, Smithsonian, The Washington Post, The Guardian, and Newsweek. And he's been featured on CNN, The Rachel Maddow Show, Chuck Todd's Daily Rundown, PBS NewsHour, and NPR's Weekly Edition. Woodard has also uh, written six non-fiction books, one of which, American Nations, A History of the Eleven Rival Regional Cultures of North America, will be the subject of our conversation today with Dave Freed. Dave, as many of you might know, is a screenwriter, a novelist, and former award-winning investigative journalist for the Los Angeles Times. He shared in a Pulitzer Prize for the newspaper's coverage of the 1992 Los Angeles riots and was an individual finalist for the Pulitzer Prize's Gold Medal for Public Service, which is the most prestigious award in American journalism. After leaving the Times, Freed worked as an investigator and associate field producer for the Los Angeles Bureau of CBS News, and he helped cover the O.J. Simpson murder case. Dave also reported from Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Iraq during Operation Desert Storm. In 1995, he sold the first of several feature-length screenplays. This one was called Stealth to 20th Century Fox. In addition to his work in Hollywood, Fried has also scripted multiple complex computerized training simulations for the Defense Intelligence Agency, the U.S. Army's Battle Command, Battle Lab, and other entities with the federal intelligence and law enforcement communities. He's a frequent contributor to national magazines, including Air and Space, Smithsonian, and The Atlantic. And Dave holds a Master's of Liberal Arts degree from Harvard University, and is currently teaching creative writing at the Harvard Extension School. And now it's time for us to listen in on what I'm sure will be a fascinating conversation between Colin Woodard and David Fried.
2: Colin, it is absolutely great to see you again. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time being with us on the forum tonight. Um, the, uh, the, the thesis of your fascinating book, uh, American Nations, A History of the Eleven Rival Cultures of North America, um, asserts that the boundaries of our 50 states essentially do little in explaining how um, different areas of the country continue to be largely culturally defined today by the different groups of people who settled in those respective areas um, hundreds of years ago. Um, you, you stated you have stated that your goal in writing the book was to better understand our, our past and how that understanding informs the present, quote unquote. Um, and so toward that end, uh, we'd really like to drill down uh, for the next hour or so uh, on one issue that is very much at the fore today of American culture, that being gun-related violence. Um, You've studied the geography of crime in depth um, and why some regions of the United States, given their historical roots, are statistically more afflicted than others by this uh, plague of violence. So perhaps it might be a a great place to start uh, if you could help us understand in a nutshell what those regions are and how they they differ from one another.
0: Right. The central argument in American nations is there's never been one America. There were several Americas from the start because um, the rival colonial projects that that set themselves down on the eastern and southwestern rims of what's now the United States were founded by totally separate groups of people. They often belonged to different empires, but even when they were Both English colonial projects, they were settled by people with different ethnographic and religious characteristics, different ideas of the kind of society they were creating, different economics. Everything was different, and they had no reason to think that they were going to end up in a continent-spanning country together. Um, They ended up together by an accident of history, and they've always been not quite on the same page in many of the fundamental questions that make up a society. Not only were the original colonial clusters on the coast that way, each of them settled a mutually exclusive strip of what's now the eastern and midwestern parts of the United States out through the 1840s, before there were significant numbers of in from other groups and places. And if you know the settlement streams they had, because they tended to avoid one another, you can see the, the true regions of the country, the people- came and laid down their assumptions, cultural institutions, ideas of what the good life is, about what to celebrate, about who we are as a people, and uh, sort of formatted the hard drive, if you will. And they did not follow state boundaries. In fact, many states are divided between separate settlement streams and indeed today are divided politically, in almost any policy matter you look at, if you start looking at things like health statistics or gun violence and all sorts of things at the county level, you can see those tectonic plates dating back to early settlement that are, in fact, the actual regions of the country. There's no north, south, midwest, and west. There's a more complicated map that is based on actual history and propagation and proliferation of culture and its assumptions.
2: So can you can you walk us through those 11 regions? I mean, briefly, what distinguishes one from the other?
0: Absolutely. Well, if, uh, if your um, audience has shown the map, we can start up in the upper right corner, the sort of dark blue area marked Yankeedom. Um, that was a culture settled originally by the Puritans who landed in Massachusetts Bay in the 1630s. This was a group of people who thought that they were uh, in a covenant with God, that they'd been chosen, like the Old Testament Hebrews, to do specific things in the world. They had been charged and tasked with a divine mission in the wilderness to build a, st- a light on a hill, uh, to recreate uh, or create a new utopian society as they understood it. And so they arrived in as a middle classish group. They were relatively educated. They came as full family units. And they deployed on the landscape. They would go and set up a town as a group, uh, promptly set up a taxpayer finance public school, a town meeting house, a town common. Land was divided relatively equally. And they thought that they were going to be judged by God as a group. Uh, They would be, uh, you know, if they succeeded or failed, they would be judged collectively. So The concern was that an individual would rise up and cause trouble, would become a tyrant, it would blow it for everybody. And so there was sort of a a, a tension, right? The the danger to the society and the project would be that humans are corrupt and you got to keep an eye on them. So in that culture, there's always been more so than other parts of the United States, a faith in institutions, a faith that government is an extension of us and that the, the individual liberty and the good of the community are coming into conflict then the good of the community is going to win out and that's played out through history in the zone that new englanders and their descendants colonized and you can see on the map that it you know you have new england but then they spread over upstate new york when the dutch who originally founded new netherland which was what new york was was originally when they were defeated by the english in the 1670s New Englanders poured over upstate New York. Not only did they pour over it, um, Massachusetts had a claim to a Massachusetts-wide strip of upstate New York, millions of acres, going in theory on out to wherever the next ocean was. They hadn't discovered the Pacific yet, but Massachusetts had a claim. So um, they were – the Commonwealth of Massachusetts didn't have sovereignty over the new uh, colony of New York, but they had uh, deeds over all this land. And that whole area was settled by Massachusetts-based land companies with Massachusetts settlers following the same model as New England. You fast forward another few generations to the creation of the Northwest Territory and then the Ohio Territory. Same thing happened on that upper strip that you see on the map against Lake Erie in northern Ohio, you know, around Cleveland. That's the Western Reserve of Connecticut, because Connecticut's colony had always had a Connecticut-wide claim all the way out to the Pacific Ocean. They said, "Hey, you can't create the Ohio Territory, federal government. You have to let us have it." And the federal government said no, but gave Connecticut land title to that area and only that area of Ohio, which was settled by people from Connecticut, replicating the model. Same thing in, later on in Michigan and Wisconsin. There were uh, there were groups of New Englanders, or uh their descendants from upstate New York or the Western Reserve of Ohio that were the initial settlers that formed the majority of the territorial legislatures that wrote the initial territorial constitutions and the first governors, all from those same Yankee spaces. So that's one culture, and you could tell a story about all of those other regions you see on the map. And those are briefly, if you go down from Yankeedom, you'll see the area around New York City is marked New Netherland. That's because it was founded by the Dutch, not the English. Totally different society. The the Dutch at the time that that area was founded in the uh, mid 1600s, Amsterdam was the most sophisticated city in the Western world. The Dutch had created global trading uh, corporations like the Dutch East India Company. They were the center of Europe's finance and trade and publishing and everything else, a society with an enormous emphasis on commerce and the freedom of inquiry um, and tolerance. I mean tolerance for all kinds of things, morally neutral. Later on it would be tolerance for escaped slaves and slave catchers, right? It's it's a morally neutral position. But the point is it was a like a haneastic city-state. It was a global trading entrepot. And from the very beginning when the Dutch had this this tiny village at the end of Manhattan Island, New Amsterdam, and it was seven hundred or eight hundred people, it was already multi ethnic multi religious there were Sephardic Jews and Muslims and English people and Swedes and you know Italians, and the Dutch were already a minority even then it didn't matter that wasn't the point; it was already becoming the Big Apple or New York City, a city unlike any other on the continent, precisely because of its Dutch origins, even today in the absence of the Dutch themselves. Think about it. New York City today is the global center of publishing and finance, and you know people all over North America fled there. You know If you were gay or bohemian and you wanted to get away from oppression and other regional cultures, you went to Greenwich Village and elsewhere. Same thing with old Amsterdam. People were fleeing all the other kingdoms to go write their brilliant books that were, you know, all the, the great philosophical works um, of you know English political thought in that time period were all published in Amsterdam because you couldn't publish them in England. So there's this whole Dutch heritage there that makes that new Netherlands zone unlike any other on the continent. You go down a little bit further and you'll see the Midlands on the coast and that stretches out from the shores of Delaware Bay around Philadelphia all the way through the sort of middle part of the Midwest and then fans out like a giant alluvial fan out into the Iowa and the Midwest. That's America's Great Swing region. It was founded by the Quakers, William Penn's experiment uh, in Philadelphia. Um, the Quakers, unlike the uh, Puritans, believed that humans were inherently good. They had an inner light. and so. They welcomed people from all sorts of creeds and religions to their utopian colonies. And so very quickly, the Quakers were a minority. But what came were people from all over the place, from all the German mini-states. You had Anabaptists and dissenters and Mennonites and and later on German 48ers and all coming to this area, which was from the beginning – multi-ethnic and multi-religious, and that was fine. The idea was that you would have many cultures living side by side and retaining their cultures and languages and strange religious practices, and they could have their schools in their own language or dialect and newspapers. And that was fine. And was the model in that Midland zone, America as a mosaic comes from that uh, ethos. Not true of the other regional cultures only there, but it was a very powerful ethos. It's also politically the swing region because it doesn't, the people, the, the, the underlying culture there is skeptical of top-down government control, but at the same time is very community oriented. Then you go down a little bit further south from there and you end up in the tidewater, the area around Chesapeake Bay and associated lowlands in the middle part of the mid-Atlantic states. Here's a place that was founded in the early 1600s by English people same time, same country in theory as the Puritans founding New England, but a totally different group of people. This is a culture that was founded and led by the second and third and fourth and fifth sons of the great English manor families in the countryside, right? Think of it as like Downton Abbey and the Granthams. You know, the firstborn would inherit everything. If you were the second, third, fourth, fifth born, well, you're out of luck, you know, go join the clergy or you know go go join an army and try to get glory in battle, but the discovery of the new world meant that suddenly those younger sons could imagine another possibility that you could go to the new world and create a new manor with its own land and its own chateau and be a self Uh, sufficient producer of crops that you would send back to London. You wouldn't send it by wagon back to London on the long roads. You would put it on a ship at your own dock and send it to London. It might get there just as fast because the roads were so bad in England. and That was the model. A Replication of the conservative society of the English countryside in southern England. And from that time on, that's what it produced. That's how you could fast forward into the revolutionary era and have all of these enlightened gentlemen, you know, quoting their John Locke, but running these giant manor houses staffed not by serfs because they couldn't find any, but by slaves. But you know the theory there, it started not with slavery in the early 1600s. It was primarily they wanted to have serfs and peasants, and lo and behold, nobody wanted to play that role. And then they brought in indentured servants. That didn't work out either, because as soon as they finished their indentures, they went and got their own land in that context. So they turned to slavery and a full-form slave system that by the end of the 1600s had already been formed and tested further to the south. And indeed, if you go further to the south on the coast, you'll see the big red fire engine red area on that map, which is the deep south. There's no the south, there are several souths. There are two or maybe three, depending on where you want to categorize these different regions. But the differences between these two slave souths you could call it the tobacco south and the cotton south if you want but the differences are profound because they were settled and founded. By totally different people. The Deep South started around Charleston and was founded not by these, you know, enlightened uh, Lord Grantham types, but rather by slave lords from the English island of Barbados in the West Indies, who had already perfected earlier in the 17th century a chain gain form of slavery that earned massive profits on sugar plantations, where well, you'd measure the profits in sugar against human life and figure out the right moment to work your your slaves to death. Whole messy, horrible um, model of society that made these people fantastically rich. These were often people in the early 1600s had gone to Barbados with nothing and built themselves up to be so wealthy they could return to England and, like the Nouveau Riche, just go buy chateaus and, you know, trash them and behave boorishly. They were, they were, they horrified the um, elite back in England, but they had so much money they could buy whatever they wanted. However, by the 1670s, their little island of Barbados, they'd run out of land. And so they turned to the new colony of the Carolinas, originally called the Carolinas in the West Indies, in the subtropical lowlands of the mainland of North America, and replicated their West Indies-style slave society. Right. No notions like the Tidewater gentry that, oh, we are the people who are supposed to govern, but we have obligations to those servants down below us, right? This noblesse oblige, none of that. This was a winner-take-all, you know, we won the, the – The struggle back on Barbados, to the winner go the spoils. It was a society organized oligarchically around the interests of the people on the very top. Um, Brutal and uh, extractive and against a lot of the ideas that would form up in the Declaration of Independence and those civic national ideas that would come later. Then go into the inland. um, Behind all of this, starting in south-central Pennsylvania, you'll see this other red zone, uh, Greater Appalachia. The beginnings of that are indeed in southwestern Pennsylvania. And then the, the settlement streams of these people work down the old wagon road into the uplands of the southern states and then on into the Ozarks and the Texas Hill Country. Another branch went around the other side of the mountains into Kentucky, and then uh, rafted down the Ohio River to settle the lower tiers of the lower Great Lakes states, and working out as far as Missouri and beyond. Largest culture today by population and enormously influential. It was settled a bit later than the ones we've talked about so far, in starting in the 1730s, 1740s. Um, and this was settled by people from the war-torn borderlands of the British Isles, from the english marches from lowlands of scotland but especially from ulster in northern ireland and it was largely a scots irish in other words the protestant irish the lowland scots think braveheart those guys who'd been fighting in this difficult war torn environment for centuries where institutions were weak where government if it ever showed up at all was usually in the form of a bunch of cavalrymen trying to mow down your family with lances where all your wealth was tied up in Sheep and animals that could be easily stolen, where you had to protect your kith and kin yourself, and uh, where there wasn't a lot of faith in government institutions, only in each other and your extended clanage and the people around you. And they were, uh, there was a warrior culture, and they were really, really good at it. So good at it that Queen Elizabeth, when she in the uh, late 16th, uh, 16th century, wanted to conquer Northern Ireland, she took large numbers of these lowland Scots and sent them there to conquer the Irish who were resisting. That's where the Ulster Protestants come from, including a lot of my ancestors. And it was the same people who were involved in the conquest of Ulster were many of the explorers who were discovering and doing reconnaissance in North America early on. And once these colonies got going, and the indigenous people in North America were resisting the taking of their land. They knew just who to call. They they brought in shiploads of Scots Irish in many places to act as the the border people, the 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 people who would who would uh, settle the contested frontier, keeping things safe for the you know feet wine drinking you know fondue uh, you know guzzling people in the coastal cities. A lot of them though went to South Central Pennsylvania, because remember I said the Quakers had an open immigration policy? Tons of Scots-Irish were trying to get out, and the Quakers were like, yeah, sure, go to our frontier. So they went to the what was then the frontier in the far parts of Pennsylvania, and that was the core of the Scots-Irish migration land that then poured over much of the continent. And it's completely unlike the Yankees. They're skeptical of institutions, and when push comes to shove, it's all about – freedom is about protecting – Individual autonomy, right? Personal autonomy and personal freedom. If government is big, you axiomatically must be having your freedom taken away from you. Nothing good will come of institutions. They'll just come and be corrupt and, and are mechanisms for wealthy people far away to try to destroy your lives. You got to keep things local. And it's all about that personal, you know, um, uh, interaction. And goes down into the religious heritage and everything else. Very influential uh, region of the country. You then go uh, down into the southwest of the United States and you'll see the area marked El Norte. This, of course, is the region of the country that was settled, actually, the first part colonized by Europeans successfully. And it was colonized south to north by the Spanish, the northernmost fringes of Spain's vast empire in the Americas, a place so far from Mexico City and certainly Cadiz and Madrid that it took on characteristics of its own. It was so remote that it was like being on lunar bases. And the people there were able to kind of create their own lifestyle very different from the extremely hierarchical um, society in central Mexico. It's always been more Entrepreneurial, work-centered, independent-minded than the rest of uh what's now Mexico, and was throughout Mexican historiography the center of you know democratic, you know, foment. There were efforts continuously to, uh, in the Mexican period for regions, parts of this region to break off and form independent republics that could be buffer states. They felt that they um they had that, not that much in common with Central Mexico and not all that much in common with this expanding United States Federation. They wanted to be a third federation in between. And so there was the Republic of the Rio Grande for a while. There was the Republic of Texas, right? Austin and his Anglo followers were not the only people to rebel. They were backed by the entire Spanish-speaking elite of that Republic of Mexico. Um, didn't turn out the way that was originally planned. Indeed, El Norte extends on both sides of the border, roughly 100 miles or so, that whole northern tier of Mexican states as well. Um, but it uh, you know resembles in many ways Germany uh, during the Cold War, right? One people's divided by a large wall in between. Then you go uh, the next to it, there's a little enclave, uh, New France. We can get into that in a minute if you want. There's another uh, smaller enclave in Alaska, of First Nation, where indigenous people, uh, largely Inuit-speaking, um, are, are, have never been extirpated from their land and have been in charge uh, the whole time there, in effect, because in the time of colonization, no one thought the place was worthwhile. Of course, it was. There were all kinds of resources there. But the people there have been able to continue their lives largely on their own terms, And uh, in the constitutional arrangements in Canada and Greenland and to some extent the United States, they're gaining a great deal of sovereignty. So stay tuned on all that. American Nations is a book about all of North America. So First Nation is a really big story outside the United States, but only a very small one here. Same thing with New France. That's the... Most of it is in Quebec and parts of New Brunswick. It's the legacy of the French effort to colonize North America. And a lot of them were ethnically cleansed after the defeat of France and the French and Indian War and uh, moved as refugees to the French colony of Louisiana at the time where they became the Cajuns. And so they're still there now. And then there's two more uh, large cultures in the upper upper three-fifths, Left quadrant of your map, um, and those are left coast and and uh, and far west. These are a little bit different than all the cultures we've talked about so far. All the other ones have been places where you know an idiosyncratic you know euro american colonization project came and perpetuated their per- that particular group's strange ideas uh, over a region of the country. These two regions were colonized much, much later. I mean, in effect, Second half of the 19th century, really. You know, once you're north of the Spanish settlement zone. And the, and the El Norte is uh, the El Norte part of the map, that's um, places where the Spanish actually successfully settled and colonized prior to the annexations rather than what was um, claimed on paper. So the first of these two, or the, uh, these two, sorry, these two regions uh, that were settled in the late 19th century are different in that they were settled by the rest of the regional cultures, not by some group from far away initially. The colonization was secondhand, so call them second-generation regional cultures. Um, Much, much younger and less time has elapsed. The oldest of the two is actually left coast, that Chile-shaped nation out where you are, Uh, essentially everything on the Pacific side of the mountains. And this was an area that was colonized primarily by two groups, by Yankees who came by sea from Boston and other locations in New England, which was the the expensive, fast, and safer way to get there, even if you had to go all the way around South America and through the Tierra del Fuego and the massive circumpolar Antarctic storms. it was still the uh, the, the safest way to go, and they came and settled the major cities. Um, seeing their journey as uh, repries of the Mayflower's uh, voyage across the Atlantic. And they were now going to come to the Pacific and set a light on the hill, uh, you know, wherever, at Stanford or somewhere. And, you know, that all the people in Asia would be able to see the great New England way. There would be a new Massachusetts on the Pacific, right? They wanted to recreate the Yankee New England project. It didn't work out that way, though, because there was a second settlement stream arriving at the same time the hard way, which was to go overland Over the then not colonized Far West, where the indigenous people were still successfully able to repel and and drive back uh, interlopers and invaders, and where the environment was staggeringly dangerous, poor roads and communication, all kinds of dangers, Donner Party and all the rest, that was the hard way to go. And they went by wagon from the Appalachian sections of the lower Midwest states primarily. And they tended to be the miners and trappers and hunters um, who colonized the countryside. And it created this unusual fecund hybrid combination, right? The left coast combines like this utopian idea that we can make a better world and should from the uh, Yankee Puritan tradition with the Appalachian emphasis On individual self actualization and exploring yourself. That turns out to be really fecund because, you know, there's what, 25 million people in that zone all told? You know, it's the size of Poland. And look at all the globally dominating companies that happen to be in that zone from Amazon to Microsoft and Twitter and Facebook and Silicon Valley and all the rest. And then finally, you have the far west last zone uh, colonized you could argue that maybe in some respects it hasn't been fully colonized yet and this is the one area where the environment trumped ethnography you know in that context of the late 19th century the conditions were so hostile high remote from markets dry difficult to settle there that you actually had to deploy industrial scale capital first before it could really be effectively settled and with the exception of the mormon enclave where they were able to work as groups to build their own um, irrigation and infrastructure, colonization followed the deployment of railroads, metal smelters and mines, trans, you know, giant irrigation projects, and sometimes uh, trans watershed um, water transfers and all the rest that were controlled either by these giant external corporations, the Union Pacific Railroad, Anaconda Copper, or by the federal government itself, which controlled and still controls most of the land which has engendered resentments either towards your external corporate bugaboos, the Hearsts and whatnot, which led you to have all these progressive senators in the uh, early and mid 20th century from the far West or against the federal government itself, um, which leads you to sort of the anti-government coalition uh, with uh, the deep South. And uh, at one point tidewater that formed a, a large block of the sort of um more individualistic, and ultimately uh, became the Republican Party coalition. And those, well, are the, uh, those are the those uh, the eleven nations. Well, let's let's talk about how
2: how those those differences in the in those areas correlate to what we're dealing with today in the United States. If you if you listen to certain uh, pundits and and some right wing politicians, um, they would have you believe that living in uh, New York today is is as dangerous as living in, you know, Somalia or South Sudan. Um, your, your research asserts otherwise. Um, you, you wrote recently in Politico that, uh, and I'm quoting you here, in reality, the region of the Big Apple comprises far and away the safest part of the U.S. mainland when it comes to gun violence, while the regions of Florida and Texas have per capita firearm death rates, including homicides and suicides that are three to four times higher than that of New York City. So on a regional basis, it would appear that the southern swath of the country uh, in in cities and rural areas alike, uh, that's where the the rate of gun-related violence is most acute. In In the context of the histories, the respective histories of those regions, why is that?
0: Yeah, there's enormous differences. We can show the maps up there uh, of the however you slice it, whether you look at overall per capita gun deaths or just gun homicides or just gun suicides or just rural counties or just urban counties or just white victims. However you look at it, those differences are enormous. And like you said, New Netherland is staggeringly safe. And the differences between, say, Yankee Dum and the Deep South are two and three and fourfold differences per capita. So how can that be is the question. And this is something, you know, we looked at that. I, I had a project called Nationhood Lab at the Pell Center for International Relations and Public Policy at Salve Regina University in Newport, Rhode Island, where we're examining all kinds of phenomenon, be it elections or gun violence or COVID-19 vaccination rates or life expectancy or obesity or diabetes where region matters and it matters for all those things it's almost like we're living in separate countries especially if you know the settlement history that gives you the tectonic plates that are the borders between the regional cultures and i knew that the uh before we crunched these numbers which are from the cdc county level data on all of this uh for the period 2010 to 2020 i knew that we were going to see this kind of pattern because there had been scholarship going back 30 years looking at the cultural bases for enormous differences in violence that have been observed throughout history between the South and the North. And uh, academics, sociologists, and social psychology researchers had already shown a link between attitudes of cultural attitudes about how you solve problems, cultural attitudes, what they were describing really was greater Appalachian culture, especially versus the culture of Yankeedom or the Midlands. In Yankeedom, for instance, if you have a problem, like somebody has insulted you um, and you know pushed you aside, been rude, insulted your wife or whatever, been a bully in the playground, you're not supposed to go like – solve it yourself. If you're bullied on the playground, you're supposed to go tell the teacher. If somebody's uh, you know, messing with you, you go tell the police. You're not supposed to solve it yourself. It's considered culturally inappropriate. The magistrates can step in and be horribly vile and throw people in the stock and burn witches and all that, but you as individuals aren't supposed to do that. That's not in your power. Totally the opposite in greater Appalachia. It, your, it, your honor is at stake. If somebody has dishonored you in any of those ways, you do not go tell the teacher and the police. You solve that yourself. It's dishonorable to do otherwise. And you go punch him in the nose, right? That's the emphasis on it. And it goes or, back. Or draw a gun. gun. Draw a gun, absolutely. Or a knife. I mean, the that was always the case here. It's not just – that uh, an infraction has occurred, it's that if you don't defend your honor, you are dishonored. This is a male-oriented thing, you know, but but the men are the ones responsible for almost all of this violence. This idea of of the defense of one's honor is really, really important. You then add on to that in the Deep South, especially, and in some of the leadership in Greater Appalachia, you had these people who were from an aristocratic milieu who believed in their honor, even like their honor was. Absolutely important to them. And if somebody messes with you, you challenge them to a duel. How dare you, and lots of them are shooting each other. That's how Hamilton dies, right? So you know he gets a, gets in trouble with a Virginian who ends up shooting him. But um you, and then on top of that, in the Tidewater and the Deep South, you had this the slave system, a race-based slave system where in some of the deep southern colonies the uh, enslaved people outnumbered the 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 white caste. Significantly, and you could only maintain control through horrible violence and the threat thereof. Violence was all around. You know, the masters could, in effect, you know, kill their slaves, punish them. You know, it was, it was a constant fact of life that you solve those things and that you had the power to do it and, and will assert your will, right? None of those things existed in the Midlands. The Midlands, the Quakers set it up. The Quakers were pacifists. So were the Mennonites and the Amish, right? So you had, um, skepticism of government authority, but also skepticism around war and the rest. And in Yankee Dem, you weren't supposed to do any of these things because you know, the authorities are in charge. So it's not surprising that you would see these enormous differences, not only in all these metrics of death around guns, but also in people's attitudes towards gun control. Where are all the places that have stand your you know, ground laws? where you, you, know, you don't have to retreat if somebody's coming at you, you can just go and shoot them instantly. Or um, where are executions? Where, where does the um, state have the right to go kill people? Almost all the executions have occurred in those same regional cultures or in states controlled by those regional cultures. Where were all the lynchings back in the day? I mean, they weren't all in the Deep South. A lot of them were in El Norte, where there was a caste system in place as well. But if you map all of the deadly race riots and lynchings all the way through the 1870s, um, and people have done that. So you can you can see maps of it. Maybe we can show one of those maps tonight. They're all in the same regional culture. So yeah, you have enormous differences uh, tied back to these historical and cultural patterns. Some of which go back to you know the the old world conditions from which these idiosyncratic colonization groups first came. You you had um, you
2: found perhaps um, predictably that the the regions with the worst gun problems uh, are also this, the same regions that are least supportive in restricting access to firearms. Um, given that there are known to be something in excess of 300 million guns in circulation in the United States today, short of a, of a national ban, how effective do you think can can any regulatory effort realistically be uh, on, a, on a regional basis uh, when you Again, when you you factor in the the, the history of uh, in, in in some of these places of, of independence and you know the, the the indignation of government asserting itself on the individual's rights.
0: Yeah, well, one interesting thing that we found, I followed up that original post about a month ago. Uh, we accessed a gigantic set of polls that were taken uh, ahead of the 2020 election. Uh, UCLA, uh, it's our NationScape project. They were polling six thousand Americans a week, the same hundred and fifty questions, including six or seven related to guns and gun control, um, and they were they were polling them every single week for months. They ended up with a poll a, a poll size of five hundred thousand. And that lets you actually look, unlike most polls, at the county level. So up through 2020, we were able to actually, with with significant confidence, be able to map by regional culture those questions. And one of the questions was, do you own a gun in your house? And indeed, the the regional cultures that are most dangerous for gun violence also have the highest level of gun ownership reported. And New Netherland, the area around New York City, has the least number of uh, guns Um, But also they asked them uh, questions about different um, levels of restrictions. Would would you support um, closing the loopholes in uh, in, uh, background checks for firearms? Would you uh, uh, support um, limiting uh, uh, magazines over a certain uh, number of uh, bullets per magazine? Would you uh, support a ban on assault rifles? And finally, would you support a ban on all firearms in private use? And the answer – Amazingly, even greater Appalachia and the Deep South, the places that are most uh, you know, in support of the right of gun owners, both of them had narrow majorities supporting uh, banning assault rifles, closing the loopholes, and uh, restricting large capacity magazines. Isn't that amazing? I mean, was, in some cases, it was only like 50.1% and other regions were like 80%. I mean, there were big regional differences, but – everybody, in even at the regional cultural level, there are majorities that support those common sense measures. Will it make any difference with 300 million guns? I don't know. I'm not a gun policy expert. But I do know that it's possible, theoretically, democratically possible, to build a coalition that would support those things even within these regional cultures that are very supportive of gun rights. And as for the question of banning all firearms, nobody supported it i mean the highest support for it was new netherland i think was like 30 something percent but in general in all the other regional cultures it's like you know 8 or 10 or 12 so the trope that they want to take your guns away doesn't seem to be supported by evidence of what the public even in the very uh, gun control supporting regions uh, have to say
2: well there there are other nations on this planet where, and you, you would certainly know better than I, but statistically anyway, the per capita gun ownership is comparable to that in the United States. Yet the frequency of gun-related violence is, is much lower than it is in the United States. In other words, um, those places have arguably as many guns or perhaps close to as many guns. And yet there, there is not the level of violence that we see in, in the United States. Um, yeah, m- maybe it's an unfair question to ask you, but, but why is that? Why do we see such disparities between gun ownership and the use of guns in, in violent acts here in the United States?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent question. I mean, we are such an outlier among any, however you want to categorize it, wealthy industrial democracy. Is there any peer nation? We're way off the charts. You know, Canada's the closest, and its rate as a nation is about the same as New Netherlands, like our very best region. Like you're like, whoa, that's incredibly safe, is about the same as Canada and most of these metrics. And you get to Western Europe, and it's much, much lower that, than that. And you get to Japan, and you know, uh, metrics where the rate in the U.S. is, you know, in one region or another, is six, 7, 15 deaths per hundred thousand. In Japan, the comparable figure is like oh Oh one six or something like that, it just doesn't happen, so even our safe places are more dangerous than elsewhere in the world, and our dangerous places are much more dangerous than any other of the wealthy countries. You raise the question of. How is it that in some of those countries, the per capita ownership of firearms is comparable to what we have in the U.S.? And therefore, why is it? Um, you know, I'm not a, a gun policy expert. I'm an expert on regional cultures, but I'm pretty sure that in a lot of those circumstances, like Switzerland, for instance, I think has very, like everybody is supposed to own a firearm to defend the country because they don't have a standing army and you train. And you, so everyone has a, you know, there's, it's like, you know, one for every person in the country, at least. But, are those concealable firearms, or, you know, or are they, you know, specific long arms used in certain situations? And are you, is everyone trained as if they're going to be defending their country as a as an actual defense force? You know, do we have that in the U.S.? Do we actually train? Every, is firearm safety really mandatory in most states? You know, can you conceal those weapons to go carry out a crime? No, you'd have to carry them around. And in Switzerland, you can't just go wandering around with a assault rifle. I'm pretty sure. Um, you know, it's not the same like open carry circumstance. You have to have a good reason to do it. And Switzerland's, an, I think, pretty much an outlier. You know, you go to the UK, it's it's pretty hard to have a firearm. And if you do have a firearm, it's probably for hunting. You know, it's not going to be something that's um, <laughs> purpose just outside of uh, – the purpose uh, is not very clear uh, if you were only looking at it for hunting and recreation. So I don't know all the answers because that's not my area of specialty, but I'm pretty sure there aren't a, there's an incomparable situation where access to a wide range of firearms and attachments and stuff is easier than driving a car or buying a, you know, pack of cigarettes or, you know, uh, you know, a pornographic magazine, right? The regulation is is so loose that it's almost the easiest thing you can obtain in this country, which I think is not true of most of our uh, pure industrial democracies. Um,
2: is there a correlation between uh, the, the insular nation, the insular, uh, nature of some areas of our country and, and, and a rise in, in gun related violence. You, you had addressed in your book the the, 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 uh, the function of, of tolerance for the other, um, I believe. And I mean, in, in those places, if you're talking about new Netherlands, for example, where it is sort of the melt, the, the, the consummate melting pot, um, and 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 a reduction or a, a a lesser frequency of gun-related violence. Can it be argued that there is a correlation between multiculturalism and 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 a in a lesser inclination to commit violent acts with firearms?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. It's not conclusive in my mind. What uh, did happen when I went to ask experts? Why is New Netherlands so safe? Because you know, I was like, well, I'm a you know, regional cultural expert, but why why is that? Is it because New York State and New York City and Connecticut in the period 2010 to 2020, in part because of the Newtown shooting in Connecticut, all have very strict gun control policies. Maybe it's just a policy matter, and people don't have as much access. So I went to you know the experts and the criminologists at the you know the the um, Rockefeller uh, you know Institute for Gun Safety and the John Jay you know uh, College of uh, Law, expecting to tell me that, and they're like, oh, they basically gave me a cultural explanation. We all know each other. We had people from all over the world. We're in each other's faces all the time. We know each other. You can't motivate people to go, you know, shoot or be afraid of the other because we all know the other. We're all the other, right? That was the explanation is a tolerant, multi-ethnic, multicultural mix made it hard to organize on that basis. That May well be true for New Netherland and certainly fits my, you know, historical model and the sort of thing that American nations would predict. But is that true of all the diverse areas? And are there places that are incredibly dangerous, say in greater Appalachia, rural counties, um, where the population is pretty homogenous and yet the violence rates are very, very high? And conversely, are there certainly cities that are very mixed, that are quite dangerous. Like Chicago really is pretty dangerous. So is Baltimore. Other cities aren't, like Boston and Minneapolis and Seattle per capita. It it doesn't really make any sense on the face of it. I mean, Boston has really bad racial politics and Seattle has all kinds of troubles, but you see certain hotspots. Many of those are cities that overall, the city itself is very diverse. I'm guessing and speculating here, because again, I'm not a gun violence expert, but I think that there may be the cities where you see the hot spots in the north, in Yankeedom and the Midlands, tend to be places that have um, large racial disparities in socioeconomics and are spatially very segregated. And where the, the worst places seem to be places where the, the people who are um, in the worst neighborhoods don't necessarily have the political muscle to have representation within their polity that kind of stick up for themselves. In other words, disenfranchisement and spatial segregation, I guess, may create a really bad mix, but this is speculation too. Just looking at the cities that are on one side or the other. I think somebody, you know, would need to be doing more research in this, who knows how to do this kind of uh, research on these things, but I think it would be a really interesting avenue to look at. Why are those there, there's, Why are there those differences in northern cities? And here's another twist: the one break in the pattern that we saw was when we looked at just uh, uh, um, per capita homicides, where the victim was African American. Um, only those, and we compared them between the regions. And it, in that um, uh, experiment, unlike any of the others. The safest places suddenly became like the Deep South and Greater Appalachia, the places that were most dangerous any other way you slice the data, and like Yankee Dumb and the Midlands and Left Coast became pretty dangerous. Why is that? I mean, there's a reason, I'm sure. I don't know what it is, but those are all lanes of research that this kind of analysis starts exposing. There's something going on with that. I just don't know what it is.
2: How did you come to be interested in this area of, of study?
0: In regionalism because – well, I was – I graduated from high school in 1987. It was the height of the Cold War and Mikhail Gorbachev was in the Soviet Union, was doing this perestroika and glasnost thing and it seemed like the Manichean struggle that was the Cold War might thaw out and that this might be an interesting time. Right. I'd grown up, uh, you know, if you're a Gen X or you'd grown up with a threat of nuclear missiles flying over your head and all that, maybe that'll change. So I gravitated to that in university and was like a Soviet East European history studies guy. And I went abroad my junior year abroad in the fall of 1989. I was in a program behind the Iron Curtain in Budapest and communism fellow was there. So I saw it all happen. I was hooked and already studying that stuff. So I stayed on in that region Um, For much of my 20s and much of the 1990s as a foreign correspondent for uh, different papers, seeing all that stuff happen, right? Battles over national identity, over who belongs and who doesn't, over an ethno-national definition of your country or maybe a civic national one, federations that are having a hard time staying together or not, battles over historical memory, right? The Soviets are gone, and they're no longer telling us how the People's Republic of Hungary's history is rooted in the socialist struggle back to, you know, Neanderthal times. No, who are we really? You know, all those things were live, and were being fought with enormous consequences, right? At the, the end of my career, was covering the aftermath in Bosnia, where you actually had you know, a a genocide and a city surrounded and all the rest. That's where things go when people start using the big lie and demagoguery to play with the clay of history. So that's stuff that I kind of lived in and you know grew up in, and then came uh, in my you know in my twenties back to uh, the United States. Was a foreign correspondent bouncing around, but starting to study and be intrigued by the U.S. Looking around, I could see as I lived in Chicago and Washington and on the uh, Brownsville, Texas, and other places that there are these divisions that don't match state lines between regional cultures. You could feel when you'd move from one region to the other, much as you could know when in Romania or Poland, you'd cross the line between the old Habsburg Empire and the Ottoman one or the Prussian one, you could tell you know the architecture was different. The people getting on and off the train were different, attitudes and everything else. You would moved into another cultural zone and you knew it, even though technically you were in the same country. I could feel that as I was traveling in different parts of Maryland or Illinois or Texas. And that got me thinking. And I wrote several books um, on American history that amounted to having to you know, do a dissertation or two on colonial history stuff before writing American Nations. But that's where it came from, is seeing how humans operate um, in a place where the history is bare and for better or worse, everybody knows it. And then coming here where we're a country that forgets its history. Nobody knows it. Nobody, even what they know isn't even accurate. And everyone's kind of, you know, it doesn't matter. You don't have to worry about history because America is a place where you can escape history and we can make our own lives, right? There's that whole attitude. But, you know, that means that all of these forces are at work on us, but we don't understand them. We don't have even words to describe what's going on. Why would we have a map with red and blue states? What sense does that make? You know, and, and why are those lines? in the 1916 election exactly the same as in the 2008 and 2012 election at a county level only the colors are reversed because the parties inverted polarities but you know why is that why why do the gun violence maps look so much like the diabetes maps and like the covid-19 vaccination maps there are reasons there but so that's why is um having that crash course in how humans think from the old world where it's really obvious allowed me maybe to see the less obvious traces of the hidden story that's affecting us here.
2: So you, so you were struck by the question when you were bouncing around the Balkans of like, who are we, who are we really, who are these people really? That you could ask the same question of, of us Americans, who, who are we after, after all of this research that you've, that you've amassed and your, your careful study of the various regions of the country, who, who are we as a people? If in fact, we are a people.
0: Well, we're a awkward, balkanized federation of these regions, and we've been held together unsuccessfully at times, loosely um, by a shared commitment sometimes to a set of ideals that were set forth at our founding almost by accident. Those ones in the Declaration of Independence, right? They were an earth-shattering covenant or commitment. Even if they were ignored, like, Nobody paid any attention to those words in the Declaration after Jefferson wrote them until like the 1830s, and someone started saying, "Hey, we need a national story to hold this country together. We're all going to break apart." Hey, this Declaration's pretty cool. Even then, it wasn't really until Lincoln at Gettysburg in the middle of the Civil War, the Gettysburg Address, that that commitment that this is what the country's about—about about a struggle to see if humans can actually live in a free society where everyone's Universe slash God given rights to survive, to not be tyrannized, to pursue happiness as they understand it, and to access the the mechanisms of self government that make that all possible. That we would create a society where that is what you're committing to. That we are all committing to protect each other as Americans to our rights to all those things. That's a pretty amazing commitment and idea, and that's what rouses people in a good way about America, when we're, you know, proud of ourselves, or somebody does something that, you know, makes you feel a stirring of pride, it's almost always linked to that. And the outside world, when they look to America says, Whoa, you know, you go, America, it's usually those moments when we're doing that. There's a lot of moments, maybe even the majority of them when we're not, right from the beginning, the moment that idea, a civic national idea that we're not a people with a shared bloodline or religion, or uh, have been you know, on this continent since before anyone can remember, because you know we showed up pretty recently and pushed the people, you know, out or subjugated many of the people who were uh, who were actually here. That you know you couldn't fall back on any of those things. So you had to have a set of ideas. That civic national thing, though, was challenged immediately from the 1830s when somebody first put it out by a ethno national one that said no. Jefferson's wrong, the Declaration of Independence is wrong, humans aren't equal. Um, only the superior Anglo Saxon race can enjoy representative self-government, and we are the ethno states of that superior Anglo-Saxon race. That was Like exactly how they said it, a group of Southern intellectuals, it had a huge movement. That was the battle of the entire antebellum period over what the United States was and how it should be defined. It's the Civil War, it's Reconstruction, and that ethno-national view actually won federation-wide control and consensus first in the 1910s and 1920s when Woodrow Wilson was president and segregating the, the victorious union government, right, the federal government. When Birth of a Nation, a film celebrating the Ku Klux Klan that started Hollywood literally was all the rage, right? The Ku Klux, it's it's celebrating the Ku Klux Klan's violent terrorist campaign to successfully roll back the political emancipation of African Americans in the South. And that, that's your heroic, awesome film, right? And that's when all these Confederate monuments we're tearing down now were being put up in the 1910s and 1920s. That's when the 1924 Immigration Act was passed, that, base, that was passed explicitly to protect the Anglo Saxon character of the country and cut off immigration from anyone not deemed to be appropriately, you know, Anglo Saxon Aryan, Nordic enough, that, that stayed until 1965, transformed the country in that respect. So, yeah. It's not until the 1960s, that civic national narrative that we've been talking about, that George Bancroft articulated in the 1830s, that Lincoln put out at Gettysburg, where that finally won over a a nationwide consensus, where nobody really questioned that that was what we were about. It's within living memory. So it's not surprising that turns out that there's a a counter movement out there can gain a lot of strength on completely un-American values. That are authoritarian, exclusionary, and um, against the idea of uh, of inherent human equality, right? Clearly, I mean, who yeah. are we, we? We should be the people committed to those ideals in the Declaration, and we've been trying to be that. But we've got this, you know, the 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 light and the dark side of the force are there, and the dark side of the force is one, you know, control in the past. So it's a it's a work in progress. You know, as Frederick Douglass argued throughout his career, these are really good ideals. You ought to try them, basically. Um, and it's that struggle to try to do that and further ourselves to that, to that set of ideals that is what Americans are. I mean, we're lots of things, right? But as what are we – in addition to all the other identities we have, what's the American identity on top that should be the shared common purpose of all of us wherever we came from and however we describe ourselves? that's what we've got.
2: Yeah, the, this, the civic national thing to which you refer, obviously, is subject to interpretation, depending on which side of the of the political line you, you find yourself on, I guess, um, given how, how fractured it would seem our politics are these days. You wrote in The Afterword of American Nations, uh, it was recently published, that the 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 sinew holding the federation and and the this American experiment together, had has proven far weaker than you that you had hoped, you personally had hoped, as evidenced by what occurred on January sixth. But can it be argued that the center did in fact hold? I mean that you know that that a duly in, uh, a duly elected president was in fact installed, uh, and that the the insurrectionists who attempted to to prevent that installation failed and are now being Prosecuted wholesale. Does that, I mean, does that not give you some degree of optimism that, that however however fragile perhaps uh, this whole thing appeared to be a couple of years ago, um, that that there is a a certain spine there.
0: I'm optimistic that we'll make it out of this crisis, but we've been standing on the edge of a collapse of the republic and a federation with a non-zero chance of descending into a civil war. Again, I think we're going to A gonna non-zero it, chance. Oh, absolutely a non-zero chance. You know, maybe a 30% chance, you know, a much higher number than one would like. Um, so um, the sinews are much weaker in the sense that when I wrote American Nations, which came out in 2011, and you're reading from the epilogue that I wrote a year or two ago, um, the idea that a group of Americans would storm the Capitol in effectively a coup attempt to overthrow an election – at the behest of the of an outgoing president would seem so absurdly science fiction that anyone would try that. But better yet, that hundreds of Americans would actually do it and succeed in breaching the floor of the Capitol. And then, if you told people back in 2011 that after that happened, the leaders of one of the political parties who had themselves had their lives threatened and you know almost killed by a mob and had to evacuate the Capitol building would actually be backing the man who led the coup and, you know, declining to impeach the person for what they'd just done, that democracy itself and the rule of law in the most fundamental way would suddenly be a partisan political question. Hey, you know, on January 7th or 8th, I wouldn't, I still, January 7th or 8th, 2021, I still wouldn't have expected that as many Republican congressional leaders would backtrack as far as they did and try to throw January sixth into the memory hole. So, I agree. I'm happy that all those things you described happen, but I think you're taking way too long a time frame. The sinews that anyone would have judged in 2010, better yet, in you know 1980 or 1990, the sinews are far far weaker than anyone would have guessed back then.
2: I, I guess the I guess the the um... The, the $64,000 question here, broadly speaking, and then and, and specifically as it relates to, to, to guns, gun ownership, gun violence, you wrote in, uh, in American Nations that, uh, and I quote you here, individual liberty and the common good are both vitally important and that a liberal democracy can only thrive when they are kept in equilibrium, end quote. How do we do that?
0: Yeah, that's the topic of a book uh, called American Character that I wrote after American Nations. It argues precisely that, that uh, liberal democracy can only exist when those two things are in equilibrium, right? Protecting individual liberty and the individual's freedom is important. If you don't do that, you're going to end up eventually – if you ran down the field long enough, you'd end up with Stalin and Hitler, right? Where the individual doesn't matter, only the fatherland or the party or whatever – but also the, the common good, the freedom of the community, the building of a, fr- of a free society is essential as well. Because if you neglect that and you run all the way down the libertarian side of things, it, it doesn't turn into a wonderful you know utopian governmentless paradise. A few families will maximize their freedom by taking it away from everyone else and killing anyone who gets in the way. We know what it looks like. It's like, you know, guatemala and honduras and el salvador under the 10 families and the eight families and the seven families who you know for a time controlled all the land and the courts and everything else and you know anyone who got in their way was out of luck not great places to live either of them logically though there's a point where those two forces that are essential to maintaining a free society are in balance in balance for that society so what does that look like in our society That's a little trickier because the regional cultures don't agree on where the 50-yard line is, right? Some of them, like Greater Appalachia, are very individualistic, call it libertarian, libertarian and communitarian, maybe we can call it. They're very libertarian, whereas Yankeedom and Left Coast are very communitarian. Those have opposite policy ramifications. If you think that maximizing freedom is about maximizing individual autonomy and keeping government weak, that's going to have a completely different set of priorities than if you think that keeping a free society going means you need to keep reinvesting in the leveling mechanisms that prevent the creation of an aristocracy over time, right? That you have to have highways and clinics and kindergartens and stuff so that the, the unluckily born have a chance at uh, you know, achieving their freedom. Otherwise, you'll end up with an aristocracy, right? Those are opposite um, uh, interpretations towards uh, how to uh, how to execute a free society. So your question is very apt. What, for our federation, with all of its crazy regional cultures disagreeing, where does the consensus point lie? And I articulated where I think the consensus is, where you could build a super majority regional coalition around one sort of general political philosophy or agenda. And it's not going to be, you can't go, you know, social democracies work fine in other parts of the world. Denmark's, you know, pretty good place to live. We're never going to get there in our current configuration because many of the regional cultures will not go that far down the communitarian spectrum and the the spot though where it comes together is a sort of um i don't know what you call it national liberalism, a scholar might call it it's at a point that's more at the center than social democracy is where the role of the state is it let's assume that there the, Americans love the idea that there's uh We're all engaged in this uh, free and fair competition uh, with each other over ideas and businesses and a better way to make a widget and all the rest, you know, athletics, and may the best person and best idea win. That'll create a dynamic and free society, but it needs to be free and fair. And how do you ensure that it's free and fair? Well, the government has to be strong enough to act as the referee so that anyone who's cheating on the rules is stopped from cheating, but also... How do you make it fair over time? Because remember, societies are intergenerational. If all of if you have uh, if you just inherit a trillion dollars, you didn't meritocratically earn that on the great field of ideas, right? You're just receiving it. Whereas if you were born with absolutely nothing and the schools in your area are total crap and you have like almost you know, this incredible struggle to move forward, that's not because your merit was any less at the start. So you have to have in fairness. Society has to be remaking the investments in all that infrastructure, cultural and otherwise, that allow people to possibly achieve, have a fair shot at achieving those ideas in the declaration, that they have a chance at pursuing their happiness, at, you know, having their best idea be able to roll out there, to be able to create their business or do whatever it is that they want to do, that they've had a shot at it. So it's not like, you know, a handout or a hand up. It's that government has your back as you go out there in that great meritocratic, I can't even say the word, competition out there. So it's that notion. So government should be investing in things that benefit and have long-term public goods that have long-term benefits for society over time and benefit in the way that furthers a free society as set out in the Declaration of Independence ideals. So it's something along those lines.
2: I suspect these are issues that the, the founders and the folks who preceded them could never in their wildest dreams have envisioned the complexities that we're dealing with in our modern society. Colin, this has been really fascinating and, uh, and very enlightening. Um, and uh, from the left coast, I, I thank you for your time and your expertise.
0: Thank you all for having me from here in uh, the farthest eastern reaches of Yankeedom. And I hope you all have an excellent day.
1: Thank you again. Wow, what an enlightening and really important conversation. Thanks to both Colin Woodard and David Freed for being with us here at the Forum. For more information about Colin Woodard, go to ColinWoodard.com. And to learn more about his Nationhood Lab, go to NationhoodLab.org. We have one more exciting new program lined up for you before we take our usual winter break. The subject will be gender and the relatively new and pretty intriguing science of epigenetics. You're not sure what that is? Well, join us back here at the forum in about a month and we'll fill you in.